welcome to episode 27 of The Distance Diaries. Thank you again for listening to us. My name is Natalia and I'm from Mexico City. And my name is Fraser and I'm from London. So what have you been up to this week, Fraser? I have been very, very busy, um, but definitely a couple of, of recent highlights uh, mm-hmm. to mention. Last weekend, I went to an art fair at uh, the Old Truman Brewery, which is uh, an event space near Brick Lane or right by like on Brick Lane, pretty much. And uh, yeah, it was this really cool art fair. It's called the Other Art Fair. I think it happens. Uh, it's like either annual or biannual event, which is is pretty cool. And I I got some, I think, free tickets from my phone company for that, which is is cool. But yeah, it was just a huge mm. collection of um, modern art, basically. And you had the artist standing by their art, hoping to sell art, hoping to kind of have conversations with people interested in uh, in it and yeah it was just really fun it's the kind of thing that I never do but actually kind of enjoy doing and just going and browsing basically cool it's a cool thing to know for artists as well to know that like, that art fair is somewhere where you can sell and exhibit yeah I wasn't sure I mean art. I meant to do a bit of research after to find out how established some of the artists were um, some of the artwork had prices on and it was sort of all reasonably priced if that makes sense like Okay. Hundreds or low thousands of pounds rather than okay, cool. like tens of thousands millions. of pounds. Or, yeah, <laughs> millions. Um, probably wouldn't have been let in if that was uh, the case. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless. Um, and then yesterday I went to a place um, called Brasserie Zadel, which I'd never been to before. In fact, I don't think I'd even heard of it before. Um, but it's quite a unique place. So it's right around the corner from Piccadilly Circus. And from the outside, it's it's sort of part of a bunch of these these sort of modern restaurants that have been been developed. Um, and from the outside, it looks like a small but nice cafe. But actually, when you go in, you can head downstairs, sort of multiple floors, and it's this huge, um, basically French like style old fashioned dining room. Um, and it's got a classic kind of French menu, like a, a French brasserie type menu. Um, and yeah, I had a nice a nice lunch there. And it's actually a really cool place. And it was quite reasonably priced as well. So hopefully um, I'll go back there at some point. Yeah. And cool. how about you? Um, mine aren't as detailed because they're not places. Well, one is a place. I went to Malakita rooftop for a party. And that is right in the center, so it's got a great view, but it's really, really pretty. I I would recommend going in, in the day, okay, in the daylight, even if it gets dark while you're there. What does it have a uh, Does it have a view of? I mean, it has a, it has a, of the center of the Mexico City, okay, because it's right in the center. So oh, it has cool. A view of the center. Yeah, I mean, you can see the Torre Latinoamericana and stuff like that. Yeah. It's kind of a view of the center, and it's a nice street, so you have a view of the street. Nice. And I also had two master's interviews, so that's a step forward into my master's, but that is, that's just a highlight, that's not a recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely so, a highlight. So yeah, um, that's what I've been up to this week. Yeah, also another thing I forgot to mention, I'm enjoying the fact that it's now um, spring, so 
Oh yeah. So it was a couple of days ago or three days ago as we were recording. The twenty first. And um, yeah. and so yeah, I think that's definitely something to be excited about and to be happy that hopefully the winter weather is gonna leave be left behind as well. Um hmm. and then yeah, I know you had a few few kind of recommendations of things that you've been reading and watching over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, uh, I just want to mention very, very quickly, if you can hear a weird sound coming from my side, it's just, it's just the streets of Mexico City. I'm really sorry, there's <laughs> someone selling something outside. So I'm sorry about that, if you can hear it. I, I Because we haven't recorded in a few weeks, sorry about that, by the way. We we didn't record for two full weeks, sorry. Um, so I have quite a few built-up books and things that I've read. So that's why this section's long. It's not just that I've had a week where I've read a million books. <laughs> <laughs> although you have been although so I, you have also been reading quite a lot which is impressive too yeah <laughs> um yeah yeah but this is this is a build-up from the last couple of weeks uh i read perfume by patrick Seusskind, so that's quite an old what well, quite an old one um there's a film that came out in 2006 with ben Whishaw that a lot of people know i hadn't i hadn't watched the film so that probably made my reading experience a little bit better because it's very. It's a book that's quite visceral. It's very slow, um, and it, it's very kind of. It's very irrational, but it is disguised in rationality because the main character, uh, who's called Grenouille, is a very rational character uh, in his own mind, and you're reading it through his own mind. The writing is beautiful. It's very descriptive. Um, it's probably one of the most important parts of the book because. It needs to convey sense through a page, which is not easy. For anyone who doesn't know what it's about, um, it's called the full name is Perfume, the story of a merger, and it's about this guy who is born in sort of the gutter of Paris, and he has this very keen sense of smell, and he can smell everything. He can. There's descriptions of the smell of a warm. Uh, in a flower like is that specific what he can smell so he becomes a perfume maker and the kind of most agile perfume maker and he becomes obsessed with the smell of certain females so he starts to research how he can capture human smell in a bottle um and ends up killing women and making sense out of them but that is that makes it sound like a crime-filled book of murders. And if you're expecting that, it is probably going to underwhelm you. That is not most of the book. Most of the book is a whole lot about perfume making, not a whole lot about crime. The last third of the book makes up for that because there is a lot more crime. And it's a much more of a page-turner because you're reading from a lot more people in the towns where he's killing these women. And the ending of the book is one of the weirdest endings I've ever read. And it's basically... the theme of the book is that odor and smell controls humans so fully that we don't even realize it and that's what the ending is about it's about tying right. that very neatly uh, and quite disgustingly so yeah uh, another book i read was conversations with friends by sally rooney i mentioned her a few episodes ago with normal people yes sally rooney is just probably one of my favorite authors at the moment Everything she writes is captivating, is very real, 
Um, and kind of her books are very much like what we're reading is like reading a conversation with a friend. So that is a fitting name for this book, Conversations with Friends. <laughs> Finished it in two days. So this one I did read quite quickly. And it is, what it's about is the psychological portrait of four people told from the perspective of just one of them called Frances. And it's about her, her best friend and ex-girlfriend called Bobby, Nick and his wife, Melissa. They're always kind of unlikable and pretentious, but you get to know them and understand that they're putting up this facade to hide internal struggles that you sort of get to read through. And it's about it's about the affair of Francis and Nick, who is who is married. That's what the book is about. And it's just you realize that you don't have to love the characters in order to care for them very much like real life people. Speaking of Sally Rooney, I read a short story by her as well called Mr. Salary. I think it's a brilliant short story. The only thing is that, again, I feel like with, with her writing, you need to delve deeper into characters in order to grow to like them enough because they're not very likable characters. Right. I also read... Sorry, I'm going a little bit more quickly now. <laughs> I also read Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss, which is a book about a family that go on holiday to an archaeological class experiment where they pretend like they're in the Iron Age. And the main character, because her father is like, obsessed with the Iron Age, uh, and the main character gets to know these college students that are doing these experiments and seeing a world that she has never seen before through them, which is basically just a more grown-up world that she'd never seen. And it's about the abuse that her father inflicts on her and her mom. I really enjoyed it. It's not very long, if you feel like reading something that's not very long, but that's quite deep, it's a great, great book. It's also nominated for the for the Women's Prize, so it's a good read. I also watched a documentary on Netflix, which is Period End of Sentence. It was the Oscar winner for Documentary Short Subject. I can't recommend this documentary enough. I loved it. It's 20 minutes. I watched it one day before bed because I just wanted to have a 20-minute watch. Still friends, I put on Period End of Sentence. And it's about the taboo of periods in rural India. Uh, and it's it's just incredible to see something so far away from my reality that actually happens, where women are embarrassed to buy pads. So they use socks, they use cloths, they use whatever they can find yeah. in order to, to go to school. And a lot of them just end up dropping out of school because it's so embarrassing to them because they, they feel like they're ill. They're not allowed to go into places of worship if they're on their period because they're not pure enough to go in. They feel like it's not common. They don't, a lot of them don't even know that all women get them. That's how far it goes, the taboo. And the actual documentary is about this group of women that are shown and brought a pad machine so they can make pads in a machine. And the man who makes them teaches them how to make it. And they start making a lot of pads. Um, just in their little hot, their husbands don't even know what they're doing, and they start selling them to to stores and to women, and it's about breaking the taboo that exists in India. Yeah, like completely changing, going against the whole like history, basically. It's just it's so inspiring to watch. The whole thing is called the Pat Project. You can check it out on thepatproject.org, and you can make donations and you can get involved. It was directed by Raika Satapchi. Uh, so you can also watch our interviews. Just, just, it, it's so good. Watch it. Twenty minutes of your life. Just watch <laughs> it. 
And I finished The Umbrella Academy on Netflix as well. It's a series developed by Steve Blackman and Jeremy Slater for Netflix. It is an adaptation of a comic book series, which was created by Gerard Way, who was the singer in My Chemical Romance, weird, and Gabriel Ba. It is very entertaining, it's visually very interesting, easy to follow, even though it talks about time jumping and sci-fi things, it's quite easy to follow. It has big stars in it, it has Ellen Page, uh in it Robert Sheehan who we actually ran into phrase in London the guy who spoke weird and was dressed weird oh yes yeah I just saw a guy who was dressed in an unusual way and then once we'd gone past him you told me who he was yeah I was like oh he's an actor I hadn't seen Umbrella Academy I I knew him from Misfits and then he he is one of the stars of the the Umbrella Academy and he dresses very similarly as he does in real life just (laughs) (laughs) and finally Coming to the end of my um, sort of two weeks of build-up, I watched Beautiful Boy in the cinema because it finally came out in Mexico. Cool. And it was one of the hardest watches. I cried and I found it very tough and I was thinking about it days after I watched it. It was directed by Felix Van Grungen. I always find his name quite hard to pronounce. Uh, It stars Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet. And it is based on the story of Nick and David Sheff. They have both written memoirs, and it is based on their memoirs. Mostly the um, David Sheffs, who is played by Steve Carell. And it's about a father and his son. And his son is addicted to drugs, specifically methamphetamine and crystal, yeah, crystal meth, uh, which is one of the hardest drugs to recover from an addiction. And I learned so much through watching it, and... I felt so much through watching it. And I think it is it is really worth it. Maybe you won't want to watch it twice, but but watch it once just to to understand the troubles that it can bring and it just it broke my heart to be honest. Yeah, it looked like a very deep film. Yeah, yeah, no it is. And Timothy Chalamet and Steve Carell are unreal in it. So yeah. Cool. Worth it to watch it honestly just for their performances. How about you? How about me? Um, good question. Not quite as many recommendations, but um, <laughs> still, those are those are good, and those are you know you've told me about a few of those over the past few weeks, and um, they all yeah. do sound really great. Um, for me, and this is um, the sort of thing I enjoy watching. Uh, I've been watching Drive to Survive, which is a Netflix uh, sports documentary series. I think there's about eight or ten episodes, something like that. And it's about Formula One. Um, And so it's Mm. kind of in the mould of another documentary that came out um, also recently, which was called Sunderland Till I Die, which was about a football club in England. And what I think is great about it is that Formula One is normally one of the most inaccessible sports for fans. And partly that's because you can't just go to the park and play formula one in the way that you can with with football and it's it's not a sport that allows for people to be close to it or to feel close you know racetracks are very hard to you know it's it's a hard event to attend it's a hard event to like view and be a spectator of um Mm -hmm. and then secondly because it's not necessarily as media friendly as it should be so the drivers are kind of kept hidden away normally the team principals who run all the different sort of uh all kind of 10 different teams on the grid are all very 
closed or their answers that they give in press conferences are very balanced and they don't speak out very much. And that's kind of just the way it's been, at least for me as someone who's been watching it since the early 2000s. Um, but this documentary is properly behind the scenes. Like, there's a few moments where drivers or people, sort of engineers will say, hmm, I don't want the camera there because you're really capturing them in like a very raw emotional moment. And I think yeah. if somehow there's a way that the broadcast coverage of the sport could capture that more regularly, more regularly across the sort of 20 or so races in the season, I think it would be a way more popular sport. Um, and it's almost a shame that it takes a documentary that's reflecting on last year's season that's obviously been edited and curated and designed to tell certain stories. It's a shame that it takes that for you to actually appreciate kind of what's going on um, mm. all the evidently all the time in that sport. Um, but it's really good if you if you have even a kind of a passing interest in in Formula One. Um, and uh, yeah, it kind of makes me want to go to a Grand Prix again or follow it a lot more closely. Maybe I'll get over for the Mexican Grand Prix one day because um, I have I've yeah. done the British Grand Prix once. But um, yeah, when is it? It's November, I uh, think. Yeah, it's late in the season. Yeah. It's in the autumn, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, it's November because they had to move a music festival yes, because of that. That's right, and I don't like them very much because. <laughs> <of that. laughs> but yeah. Um, in terms of other things, I've been thinking about going to a festival this summer, not for not to do the whole kind of camping thing and to do the sort of full experience. But I was thinking about maybe I could go for one day to Reading Festival because um, there's obviously a ton of artists that I like that are, are playing there. Yeah, um, I did Community Festival last year, and that's on again this year, and the lineup looks pretty good. But what made me think You'll of that... You'll probably do that. Yeah, I, I could do it again, because that one's obviously just in North London, so it's not too far yeah. to go across town. Um, but what made me think of that is that I've been listening to the Japanese house, um, a.k.a. Amber Bain, who released... Uh, her album actually about two three weeks ago now um and yeah it's really good it's got a really nice mix of sort of her typical kind of ambient um sort of electronic subtle calm mm. tracks but then also a few more sort of songs that you might kind of call pop songs just in terms of the structure i think you can hear a lot more of her, her, her actual voice. exactly exactly there's a yeah. few tracks which are you know show off her voice which is is great um, really like the the album. The lyrics are all super emotionally charged and personal. And even though I've had like completely different life experiences to what she's talking about, because of the sort of the emotion and like the authenticity in it, you find it very kind of relatable because it's human. Moving. Yeah, because it's human feelings and it's it, and it's deep. So it's great. And it's also four years since her first um, debut song came out, uh, which has tried yeah. To so still. for example, in in still you can't really tell what her voice is like yeah which i find a bit disconcerting i don't know why <laughs> um but she actually has a really great voice yeah when you uh, even even with all that sort of auto tuning on she has a great voice but if you remove it and leave her voice almost raw it's still a really really nice voice yeah so, it is yeah it is worth it is. And it's listening a good to album it. yeah it's a good album yeah. to, to put on Great. So, 
For this week, we thought we would discuss uh, a topic that, as always, has been being talked about quite a lot and is quite sort of fresh in, in the minds. Um, and that is uh, the recent documentary that came out um, called Leaving Neverland. Um, yeah. And do you want to just say, for those of you who don't know, what it's about? Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, uh, <laughs> Leaving Neverland is a documentary, a two-part documentary that came out in HBO, I think March 4th. Yeah. Um, and it is basically about two men now sharing their testimonies uh, alongside their families about sexual abuse that they suffered when they were children to the hands of Michael Jackson. So that's sort of what the documentary is about, is very sort of deep, long interviews with uh, the men and their families and eventually also their wives. So we're going to talk a lot about what happens in it and we're going to delve into it. So if you feel like you want to watch it first, it's not really a spoiler because the documentary, so it's hard to spoil a documentary. But if you want to watch it first, watch it yeah, first. Yeah, spoiler um, alert, it's not good for Michael Jackson. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's. Um, I think it's about a lot more than Michael Jackson, yes. but we'll get into that. Yeah, um, uh, and I think you know the the. I think as you mentioned, it's it's two parts really, but it's mm-hmm. it's sort of really to be watched as one, um, and it's four. Yeah, I watched all four hours. Yes, straight. I've nearly finished the final, the second part. Um, and it's yeah four hours long and I think for me what I was struck by in the first part when I, I sort of hadn't appreciated it fully was how kind of slow the film felt like there's a lot of pauses yeah. there's effectively the whole film the format is people talking with pe- being interviewed people talking over archive footage of Michael Jackson and where he lived and his concerts. That's it. And him with this kid. Yeah, and him with these kids and with other famous people. And that's the format for the whole thing. And you realise as this film's going on that it's actually a very deliberate ploy, I think, that's been taken by Dan Reed, who's a British filmmaker who made the film. Um, and I realised that because of the way it was being paced, you were really appreciating every detail that was being given to you. So every detail of Michael Jackson's personality, every detail around the the locations, the times and the specific events and accusations that are being made by the victims and their families. And I think the fact that it just, it always takes a few seconds after every statement just to not have any audio, show you an image. Let it sink in. Let let it sink in. And for me, like, that's made it sink in a lot deeper than if they just come out and said, here's what happened, here's all the accusations, awful, awful, awful. Like, the impact would somehow be less than than telling a slow story over four hours. With images. With images. Yeah. And I think... I think it was quite hard for me in that sense to to hear some of the audio with the images on top of it because I, I think it was on Wade Robson's uh, description where you're seeing a photo of him as a child, honestly, tiny seven-year-old kid next to Michael Jackson and he's talking about, quite explicitly, about the sexual abuse. And because you're seeing the image of the two of them together at the time... Is very is very difficult to see 
It's quite like that. I, yeah. It's quite unbelievable and not... You can't even imagine it. It's just quite tough. But that is the point of putting that image on there, for example. The film starts quite... You get a sense of what the film's going to be like from the very start because you start with the families and the the men, the the victims slash accusers, uh, talking about how great Michael Jackson was and his talent and this this kind of magical personality that he had and how much he was loved. And then suddenly one of them looks at the camera straight and goes, and he sexually abused me for seven years. And that's it. That's, that's the feel of the whole documentary. Yes, Michael Jackson has a magical personality and he sexually abused children. Yeah. Like, that is the whole documentary. But yeah, I think that that was a very telling part of it, the, the very beginning. Yeah. So what this documentary does is it brings out accusations of a big star that sort of crumble their image. And there's this great New York Times article by Amanda Petrusic uh, where she talks about the documentary and why it's important outside of Michael Jackson, which is a lot of what I want to say. And I'm just going to read a paragraph from from it because I think it's very relevant. In recent months, pop critics have undergone a mass re-evaluation of the career of the R&B singer R. Kelly, who was first accused of sexual assault in the 90s, but managed to accumulate breathless accolades for many more years afterwards. It is hideous, but true, that allegations of this sort have historically been treated differently when the accused is a virtuosic and deeply beloved male performer. Miles Davis allegedly bit his wife. Jimmy Page allegedly had a relationship with a 14-year-old girl. The late rapper Existentation allegedly battered his ex-girlfriend when she was pregnant. Chuck Berry was convicted of transporting minors across state lines for immoral purposes, and on and on and on, until the entire history of Western music collapses in a haze of abuse and transgression, unable to survive any sort of moral dragnet. And she's also saying that this documentary is a part of that, it doesn't matter whether you believe the allegations or not. It is something that is so common in music and that is so commonly ignored in music. Yeah, and I think we're kind of living in a time now where these things are being a lot more publicly aired. Like the things that you've alluded yeah. to are things, some of which are recent, but some of which are from a really long time ago. And mm. I, I guess it's kind of skipping ahead here, but... I hope that this is like an era of sort of revelations and scandals that won't happen in such a big way because it will be more of like a constant process of people yeah, exactly. being sort of found out or or whatever rather than it sort of having to come out 20 years, 30 years later. Um, and mm. that quote that you read sort of, I suppose, really summed that up. Yeah, it's and Dan Reed talks about this in an interview of a podcast I want to recommend. It's called The High Low, and their latest episode is an interview with Dan Reed, the director of this documentary, and then very deeply uh, analysing the documentary. So if you're interested in it, I do recommend listening to that podcast as well. Uh, but he talked about, in this interview, he talked about how the internet has changed the way in which these things are aired, so it's much more common to hear about them because people feel like they can turn 
to Twitter to, to say what happened. Whereas they couldn't do that before. And it doesn't mean that it happened any less. It just means that they, the only way that these people could talk about it was either tell their mothers or tell police, which is terrifying. So he talks about how the internet has changed that for good as well, which is interesting because you barely hear about how the internet has changed things for, for good. <laughs> but <laughs> that specific thing he, he thinks has changed good yeah that makes sense and it gives people access to maybe find other people who've been through similar experiences as well exactly. and connect with like journalists or people who can give them advice or whatever it is um and that's yeah. definitely definitely a positive yeah so let's fully talk about the documentary so what do you think race what 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 struck you what do you think yeah, I mean, I was just disturbed by by the accusation. Yeah. It's hard not to be, you know, as as we discussed at the start with, you know, the details that are being mentioned and the images that you're seeing. I think, obviously, you have to mention that people have criticised the fact that there's not... The film isn't presenting specific pieces of evidence that abuse occurred. It's presenting, like, the stories of how the accusers allege that abuse occurred it's not saying here's like what you'll find here's what you'll see it it is like a storytelling thing but i think you know there's obviously a huge amount of evidence that michael jackson did meet these people and yeah there's tons of photos of him with with wade and with james and you know i think it's going to change the way that people view him in a in a major major way Ultimately, a few kind of brands and individuals have made changes as a result of of the yeah. documentary. So uh, Drake has removed a song, um, Don't Matter To Me, which had some a sample of Jackson's vocals on it. He's removed that from his, like, his set list. There's multiple kind of radio stations around the world have decided to stop playing his music. Louis Vuitton have said that they're not going to produce michael jackson inspired products Mm. in their sort of future collection yeah that something about that just tells you how much of a deep impact he had on everything given louis vuitton has to say we're not going to do any michael jackson inspired products because so many fashion brands do michael jackson inspired products because he was so big yeah the level of fame of michael jackson is beyond any of our imagination and i think it's a testament to the impact that the documentary's had and the critical yeah. acclaim that it's had that, you know, I think now at best people are going to view him, most people are going to view him with suspicion and genuinely millions of people are going to think he's guilty of abusing children. Yeah, there's millions of people who are diehard fans who are defending him to, to the grave. And yeah. the Michael Jackson estate obviously says that none of this is true. Yeah. And there is the element that there is no real proof that any of this happened. But what I what I feel in cases of, of abuse and sexual abuse, it is very hard to have proof of it. Yeah. Uh, because most victims come out years and years later because they were too scared to come out when it happened and something important about child abuse that i personally learned through this documentary as well is that these children they don't realize what's happened to them they don't understand that what's happening is abuse they have no way of saying that is wrong because they don't understand that it's wrong yeah they thought they were having 
fun with a friend. Yeah, they like, thought, yeah, exactly. It. And that's a recurring theme is that Michael Jackson was their friend and that's it. Yeah. Like, that's all, you, you don't know if certain things are right or wrong as a kid. You just, like, know that the way that people behave around you, like, if they're nice to you or if they're not nice to you, basically, when you're yeah, that exactly. young. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't understand that what happened had been abused until they were a lot older. Yeah. They they didn't get it because they wanted to see Michael Jackson because he was Michael Jackson. Yeah. They wanted to be around him. They, their families wanted to be around him because of the, the star power that he had. And I think it's very important to realise this with any sexual sexual assault case. And we saw this with Brett Kavanaugh. People are like, where is the proof? How can you have proof when it happened 30 years ago? You can't. And it's the nature of the type of abuse as well. Exactly, It's just yeah. almost certainly not going to be that specific specific yeah there's not going to be blood-stained underwear because it's not that doesn't exist anymore it was over 30 years ago um so yeah that that is something that i don't understand with any sexual assault case really asking for the evidence when it happened so long ago there's no way to have that but yeah there's obviously a lot of people that don't think it's true and i think that the reason why this documentary is important is because it's not it's not even about that it's much broader it's about child abuse it's about a topic that is so uncomfortable to talk about that most people turn a blind eye on it. Yeah. And you shouldn't. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, probably for the the victims who appear and their families, it's about them having a voice and yeah. and saying like their version of the story um and in a way that they've not been able to before. Yeah, and that is what Wade Robson says. He says it's not fully going to make a difference to him now because, well, Michael Jackson's dead and he's he's, been, he's married, he has a kid. But he says if it makes any difference to a child that's being abused or there was abused and is able to come out and say it because yeah. he's realised through me what happened, then it's something I want to talk about. Yeah. And that's what it's about. And the last 15 minutes of the document, the last of half hour of the documentary deals with the actual, more than the recounting of events, is the aftermath of what happened to these men in when they became men um, and when they had kids and what happens to your psychology and what happens to your family when they found out. Because this is a case where the families were present during a lot of it. Um, their families agreed to have Michael Jackson sleep in the same bed as their child. And when they find out what happened, when they allowed that, obviously it breaks them because how can they not blame themselves? Yeah. So it's quite tough to watch. Uh, So that is another thing that I wanted to, to talk about that comes in a documentary and that probably happens in a lot of child abuse stories and I haven't seen this, but apparently it also is very present in Abducted in Plain Sight, which is a Netflix true crime documentary. And it is that the grooming that happens, a lot of times in the sexual abuse that we mostly hear about, there's grooming towards the victim. But when it's child abuse, there's grooming towards not only the victim, but their entire families are groomed. And Michael Jackson would be would say to the whole family, I love you, I need you, I'm lonely, you are my family, you've become my family, 
um, I didn't have a childhood and you've made me feel like a child. That type of thing. The, the mothers of these boys felt like Michael Jackson was their child. Yeah. So to them, eventually, their child sleeping in the same room as their other child wasn't weird. Because it's normal. Yeah, That's pretty, how pretty shocking. deep it went. Because to them, it was like, he's just a kid. Michael's just a kid. So, because one of them, I think, oh, I get them mixed up, which is horrible, but I think it was James's mom didn't let James sleep in the same room as, as Michael the first trip that they took together because she, she thought it was weird because they didn't know him and he was seven. And then eventually, when the grooming was enough that Michael felt like a part of the family, it stopped feeling weird. And that's when the sexual abuse started. So it's really important to, before blaming the families, and it's quite tough because even Wade and James don't know if they've forgiven their families yet, but before us as outsiders blaming them, we need to realise that the grooming was so deep that it was also to the family. It wasn't just to the boys. Yeah. Yeah, definitely something that was very striking in the, in the way it's portrayed. Yeah, and really, Michael Jackson's grooming was to the world. His his star power was crazy. He groomed the world. Everyone saw him as this incredible boy. Yeah. And when he hung out with boys and when he came out holding hands with, with kids, people thought, of course, it's because he didn't have a childhood. So why wouldn't he be doing that? He's trying to be a child and he's helping children. So we were all in that bubble as well. He was never really questioned. Even when he was questioned by court, when he was uh, in lawsuits, the public never really questioned him. Mm. Even in the sense of he became white. It was like, oh, he's just cookie Michael Jackson. That's what it was. It wasn't... It was never a serious questioning, in my opinion. I don't know. Maybe you disagree with me. No. Okay. <laughs> no, I think that's a very profound observation, actually, that he was able to sort of manipulate his personality to on a lot of different fronts, basically. Yeah. And sometimes I think he didn't even realise he was doing it. Yeah. I, th I think sometimes it, it was just... Yeah, it, it, that was his, his personality yeah, was and he was a bit of a child. The way that he spoke is like a child. And we all see it as, oh, he spoke like a girl, but he didn't. If you listen to it, he spoke like a kid. Yeah, and there's recordings and, and well, without giving too much away, there's recordings and writings within the documentary that sort of show that um, yeah. very directly. He's, he very much spoke like he was a nine-year-old. Yeah. Really. So it's hard not to feel bad for him, I suppose. Yeah, almost. I don't know. But I don't find I find it easy to feel bad. No, no, yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, find it I very mean, hard if, to feel bad for him. If you imagine before watching the documentary, him talking to to your child, you'd be like, "Oh, this guy just wants to to be to help a kid." I don't know. I feel I do understand where that will come from. So I think the other sort of piece that this has got me thinking about, and also thinking about the recent Madeleine McCann-themed um, mm. eight-part documentary that was, came out on Netflix, is, you know, are there kind of moral issues that arise from 
this type of show and I think there are um so I think the first thing that, that I think and this is less of a moral issue this is more like people's reaction issue is that a lot of people blame victims or like start harassing victims or accusers yeah. or you know whatever you want to call people making accusations on on the shows or people take a side and then publicly try and have a go at certain individuals who may be completely innocent yeah um and i don't know what we can do about that but i know you know it's a bit like in the case of the disappearance of madeline mccann which is a whole other thing and we're not gonna yeah in case people but but just in case people don't know what it is it's a documentary that came out on netflix a part documentary about the disappearance of a girl in portugal um she was british that's what the the... Yeah, and it's sort of one of the most notorious things because it was over ten ten years ago now. Yeah, um, and it's sort of twelve years. I think. Yeah, and it really shocked everyone. Um, but basically, a lot of people have decided that it's the the parents killed the girl, <laughs> accidentally killed the girl, abducted the girl, sold the girl, drowned the girl, yeah. like. Or just were, there's all these theories or they were just so it. negligent that somehow it's their fault, and yeah, like any of those things could be true, but and that's that's the fascinating thing about it. No one, no one knows. Like one of those things could well be the the, the case, but it's the fact that like now, <laughs> thankfully they don't have Twitter for obvious reasons. But you know that's maybe not the best example, but just thousands of people have a go at them, and it's in in the same way that with these people making these accusations in the Leaving Neverland documentary, there's a pool of hundreds of thousands or millions of fans of Michael Jackson who will just accuse people within the film of lying or being dishonest or being motivated by other things or or whatever. Yeah, I mean... Wade Robson is quite famous himself because he's a he's, he's a famous choreographer. Yeah, yeah, he's a famous choreographer. And honestly, if you read on Twitter, just leaving Neverland, that's the only words I look for. And a lot of it is on death threat threats to to Wade. Yeah, specifically, and which is insane, and and to his wife as well. Yeah, and it's just it's crazy. no one deserves that basically yeah yeah. is what it comes down to and and just on going back to the whole kind of moral issues thing i think there's also a second thing so one thing is sort of victim blaming or just like abuse of people featured within these these shows and that's the nature Mm. of these things being discussed it's the nature of things being in the news that you're going to get people taking aside and and you know some people liking some things and not liking other things but the second thing is, is it, is it good that we, as consumers or, or whatever, are viewing these sort of pieces that are offering up one side of a story? Now, I think in the case, I, have, I haven't watched the Madeleine McCann disappearance yeah, Netflix show, but I think, you know, they've tried to put together a sort of portfolio of, of people, although the parents are not actually in that show. Um, but, yeah, but I think they interview sort of the cops at the time. Exactly, the it's, 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 over, it's like over forty so, yeah. different stories or something that yeah. they, they've got. But 
we see with this and also with thinking kind of about the fire festival documentaries that came out that effectively based on who actually appears in these shows or sometimes it's for legal reasons people can't appear sometimes it's just because they don't want to yeah we end up with a certain perspective on these issues and we and we end up casting judgments on on all of these these different people who will never meet and we don't know ourselves and it's really really hard to sort of get a sense of of balance and to understand like is this sort of really well put together story that we're seeing on Netflix or wherever like is this the whole story or am I just like being told one aspect yeah of it? I believe for example in this in Leaving Neverland I do believe that Dan Reed wasn't trying to give you a full contextual story and you can tell because he, it's not a biography of Michael Jackson. No. There is actually, if you think about it, there's very little in it about Michael Jackson's life. Yeah. Um, is very much about uh, Wade and, and James and their families. That's, that's what it's about. Um, and it's about the effect on them. And that is, is not giving you the full story. It's just giving you their story. And it's very deliberate in just giving you their story, I think. Yeah, for sure, because it's their moment, effectively, to give that story. Mm. I'm more... I'm thinking... So thinking back to the Fire Festival documentary, there were two rival ones, obviously, on Hulu and Netflix. And different documentaries contained interviews with different people who had their own perspectives on who was to blame for the abandonment of Fire Festival. Yeah, and I mean, both of them probably blame blame the main guy. Yes, the main... In terms of other... ...organiser gets a lot of blame, but there's a ton of other people who are involved, and it's just really interesting yeah. that, you know, you can come to a completely different conclusion about these things based on what you've seen. And I suppose, and I was thinking about this earlier, and I think actually it's no worse than when one person sort of releases a book, for example, because that's how things maybe were more commonly done in the past. I don't know. People mm. would sort of write a book or they'd do a, an exclusive in a magazine about their side of the story. And I suppose just the fact that it's in it's on Netflix or wherever allows it to travel, not just sort of domestically, but really all around the world um, very, very quickly. And it's tough. It's tough to sort of not form a really strong opinion when you watch yeah, one of, of these course. pieces. Especially, I think, with Living Neverland, it's a piece that is so striking and is that is hard not to form an opinion and a very strong opinion. But what I do think is important is that in these types of, th- types of things, especially in, in assault courses, but even with Fire Festival, um, it's just more, it's more so with Living Neverland because it's Michael Jackson. Um, even no matter how big a fan you are of someone... You need, you don't know, you don't know them. You need to question behavior because I see a lot of people like Michael Jackson would never do anything bad ever. Like he is, he was an angel. He would never do anything bad. And it's like, sorry, you don't, you don't know the man. I like his music, but I don't know him. Yeah. And I think even if you don't believe the specific sexual assault stories, it wasn't, he didn't hide the fact that he slept in the same bed as seven-year-old boys, as a fully grown 30-year-old man. I'm sorry, but question behaviour. Yeah, I think that's definitely, like, the primary takeaway 
thinking about it of the whole show if or the whole like documentary i should say is question people's behaviors Your idols. and yeah. especially if you know never you you just cannot be starstruck and you cannot let those things get in the way i think that's definitely like the one thing that i've taken away from it yeah no one's superhuman and that's what happened to the mothers of these kids they were starstruck yeah. it was michael jackson and he chose their child like that's what they saw yeah um and he's gonna be so good for my kid because he's michael jackson he's an angel he would never do anything and it's it's about just questioning sometimes if you don't know someone yeah like it's a you should and that's with a lot of the cases that i mentioned in the new york times article r kelly owned a cult and he was still get, getting prizes because people saw him as this great figure yeah um is is kind of that type of you need to question people's behavior really also something to say is that the jackson estate has sued hbo for a hundred million dollars that's a lot of money because that's low money because they had they held on to the contract that they had uh it was 27 years ago um i think hbo uh, televised a concert by Michael Jackson and there was a non-disclosure agreement that they signed at the time and the Jackson estate is now saying that they breached that right. by bringing out this documentary and are suing them by $100 million. So the, the, the Jackson estate is moving to sort of shut this down um, yeah. because they, they, they are defending Michael Jackson and we don't really know what happened. Um, we're just saying question behaviours. So thank you yeah. so much for listening. Hopefully been an interesting episode and some uh, good books and movies and stuff to, to <laughs> recommend. Um, and yeah, we'll hopefully have another episode pretty soon. Next week. Yeah. Let us know what you think. If you think anything about what we said or about the documentary itself, we can mention it on the next episode. I am on Twitter and Instagram as at underscore natalia albin and i am at fraser d bell and our email is the distance irish podcast at gmail.com brilliant so thanks again for listening thanks for listening and we'll speak to you next week bye bye Thanks for listening. This podcast is hosted by Mexi Clothing, a brand that brings you modern Mexican fashion into the UK and Europe. For more, you can visit www.mexi.clothing. Thank you for listening.